Howdy, folks. It is Nick Bond of How Wrestling Explains, and I am here, as always, with... David Gibb, also of How Wrestling Explains. And we are here to introduce you to the wonderful world of NWA wrestling in 1985. Dave, how excited are you right now? Oh, I am super duper excited, just because we're getting close to the actual pod beyond actually talking about wrestling shows together which i've really been excited to do with you i mean we we do a lot of great conceptual talk but i think the best and most interesting conversations about literature always occur when you're kind of grounded in a text so i'm i'm just really really looking forward to this and and i'm also especially looking forward to to this episode because i think that we're we're jumping into wrestling at a very particular and very exciting and historically fascinating and super duper important time. Yeah, there's a lot of goings on before we get to April 6th, 1985, which is the first episode we'll be covering, and you will be able to listen to that episode on Saturday. So we're releasing this on a regular feed. Uh, if you want to check out the actual podcast, you will want to go to patreon.com slash hwetw and uh, sign up for the $2 tier, and that will get you access to the podcast feed and some other stuff for the pod beyond, which we wanted to start this episode by basically basically explaining how we got to where we're going to be. And then uh, and for the second half, we're going to explain some of the people we're going to meet when we get there. But uh, Dave, the resident historian for the show, uh, did a ton of research on the history leading up to Jim Crockett promotions in and World Championship Wrestling being the flagship show of the NWA. And it starts, as most things do, in the, the early 1970s, right, Dave? Yeah, definitely. I mean, kind of, I think the, the beginning of the discussion of really what we would consider modern wrestling is the early days of cable. And uh, when Ted Turner first uh, you know, bought his, his UHF station and decided to sort of start gradually boosting it and boosting it and getting it all over the country, uh, one of the first pieces of, of original programming that he secured was uh, wrestling from the, the ABC Booking Company, which was run by... Uh, a promoter named Ray Gunkel, and a guy named Paul Jones. Not the manager Paul Jones, who we'll talk about in uh, Mid-Atlantic and uh, Crockett later on, but a, a, an older person from a previous generation named Paul Jones. Um, so, so Ted Turner, shortly after starting WTCG, which was the original name of TBS, which stood for famously, Watch This Network Grow, uh, which is cute. <laughs> or terrible. I'm pretty sure that's the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> but he's a very successful man, so I really can't knock him too much. But wow, what a name. <laughs> the 70s were fucking weird, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I mean, it was a weird time in wrestling, too, particularly in Atlanta, where, where Turner and his venture were based. Because 72 to 74 is that time period that, that's known as, like, the Atlanta War or the, the Battle for Atlanta. Because... Ray Gunkel, one of those guys who owned the Georgia promotion, uh, he died in the ring <laughs> or, or uh, shortly after a match that he had with Ox Baker, which was like part of the whole mystique of Ox Baker. Heart punch, right? Yeah. Right, which is another tangential uh, story. But Gunkel did have a, like a sudden cardiac issue and, and, and die. Um, but what happened was his widow, whose name was Anne, and who was a, a uh, Atlanta socialite and rumored extremely close personal friend of Turner. Uh, she, she decides to execute this plan that possibly Ray Gunkel had been planning, which was to cut out this older promotion 
uh, our older promoter, Paul Jones, who was the representative of the NWA, and to take over the Atlanta area with a private independent company, which they called uh, All South Sports. So that was this kind of a, a opposition group or outlaw group that was running against the NWA in Atlanta in the early 70s. And so this, and at one point, literally both their shows, so there's this promotional war going on for control of Atlanta, and both shows are airing on Turner's TV at one point because Anne is, like I said, a socialite and moves in the same circles with him. And they were kind of rumored to be more than friends, at least in the wrestling business, people who are mean and sexist said that. <laughs> uh, but also Turner had a pre-existing relationship with uh, with Buddy Fuller, with Ron Fuller, friend of the show's father. And so the, the both the NWA and Gunkel's company had relationships with Turner. So no matter who won that promotional war, there was going to be wrestling on, on cable in, in the 70s. And uh, that's something that happens not infrequently where a promotion who thinks they're too big for their britches, or in some cases are big enough for their britches, breaks off from the MWA. I believe a couple of, about a decade later, McMahon does it, right? With New York, he says, go fuck yourselves, basically, to the NWA. Yeah, I mean, McMahon, they, they dipped their toes in and out of the NWA multiple times over the year. I mean, they, they, they dipped out when they made Buddy Rogers their champion, and then they were kind of back in, kind of half in, and then the 70s, and then they were back out again in, the, in 81 or whatever it was. So, yeah, definitely, you know, promotion, promotions that, that thought that they did well enough in their own little fiefdom that they didn't need the support. I mean, definitely, you know, there was some, uh, some incentive to, to cut out people who you thought were unnecessary partners and keep the majority of the money for yourself and run the business the way you wanted to do it instead of having to consult this big kind of national wrestling mafia. And, and I think that's a, the kind of thing that can only happen in these big metropolitan areas like a New York or in this case Atlanta, right? Like you need a certain level of support to be able to pull something like that off because the way the NWA worked is you would have the biggest stars come and then you would – there would – there was essentially revenue sharing through the idea of sharing stars and sharing titles and things like that, where you need to have a base of people where you're touring in a relatively small area to build up interest in your product instead of relying on a larger entity to bring eyes to your product just because people are excited about the NWA champion. You need an actual base of fans to be able to do anything like this. Oh yeah, definitely. And I think the person who understood that the best was one of those kind of classic wrestling mafiosi, uh, and, and that's Jim Barnett. Uh, he had, throughout most of the 60s, just made himself a king by, by creating or innovating, breaking into Australia where they'd never seen pro wrestling before. And so in 74, Barnett comes back from Australia, and he's really the person who... Uh, who brokers the peace and kind of brings Georgia back together in terms of in terms of wrestling. But he definitely understood from his time in Australia that exactly it's all about, you know, it's all about the touring and constantly building the audience. But at the same time, you know, he understood that it was also about the television as well. So I think that Jim Barnett was someone who he kind of stepped into this this chaotic situation where there was a lot of potential with this really good, you know, growing TV platform and stuff. And he was someone who, when things were really chaotic, stepped in maybe with the, the organizing touch. And he's also the person who owned the rights to the name 
World Championship Wrestling. We're going to hear a little bit more about that throughout the history of this show. And it's an important, it's one of the, probably the second most important name in the history of wrestling, that World Championship Wrestling. But that's not what it was called, right? It Was it was it a different company or am I misunderstood? Because the, the history of the names and stuff like that, it kind of convoluted, right? So you, the show, so the, the national show on TBS was promoted by Georgia Championship Wrestling, uh, which was the company that was created when this piece is brokered with, you know, Barnett and the Fullers uh, and the Grams down in Florida who have an interest and Watts, who's a very active booker at this time in the area as well. So, so there's this new Georgia wrestling or Georgia Championship Wrestling company that's created out of the piece between all those folks. And uh, when TBS, you know, goes national and starts to expand to kind of shake the regionality, they begin to call the television show World Championship Wrestling, even though it's promoted by Georgia Championship Wrestling. And if you listen to the credits at the beginning, like the bumpers at the beginning and end of the episodes, they'll say that, you know, World Championship Wrestling is, oh, I don't remember what the exact wording they use, but is, you know, provided by the Georgia Championship Wrestling office and stuff. Like they would, they would say that at the beginning and the end. But, you know, if you have a national show, it doesn't make sense to call it Georgia Championship Wrestling, because why would someone like me growing up in, like, California care? Yeah, and it's it would almost kind of be like eventually WWE turning into Raw. Or TNA turning into Impact Wrestling. Much better example than the one I gave. The Georgia part of it is an important one in terms of the influence of the style. The, the Georgia show, the 1970s Turner Wrestling, uh, was definitely sort of grounded in that that southern traditional style of of kind of wrestling based map based storytelling like you think of like you know uh like ole anderson is kind of you know a wrestler who i would think of we've talked about him in some previous episodes but just that kind of grinding style but also the angles being very personal and about a certain kind of alpha manhood where where you know egos were easily bruised and conflicts came to to violent uh, bloody kind of believable ends but at the same time that stuff was kind of tempered with some of the more showbiz stuff from you know like the folks like like barnett and and from that the the people in the television business in the atlanta area you know where, where things were really starting to change so on one hand you had this product that was you know really grounded in traditional southern wrestling but at the same time in other ways they were definitely you know on the on the cutting edge in other ways the show was much it was closer to uh, an actual television show than you would expect, right? Oh uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that in terms of production value and stuff like that, I mean. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, they took. I mean, once again, it all it all comes back to uh, Ron. Uh, they took a lot of the production techniques that Ron and Les Thatcher had innovated in Continental, the things like split screen and instant replay. Uh, and slow motion, and and that was a big part of the package too, because those actually came to Southern Wrestling way before the WWF. They don't do many replays in the WWF, even through the Hulkamania era, or like slow motions, very few and far between, but that stuff was actually uh, really innovated down South, the more sports-like production elements of studio wrestling. Yeah, there's definitely a much more sportsy feel to this than there is to the production of WW, WWF and I, I think this time their WWF is much more plain Jane. Like you watch it, it really, there's no pop to it. It's, it's kind of weird to watch WWE now and understand that that's where 
it came from is this relatively it's not bad production but it's it's like i said it's very plain jane it's not you ex- the show you're watching and expecting from watching modern wrestling is actually way closer to what you see now with something like uh uh for something like a Georgia championship wrestling or world championship wrestling it's not what the evolution of presentation isn't through a through line through WWE. It's just not, they were producing a television show or make movies, pal. They weren't producing a sports show that was scripted. They were producing a television show that was pretending to be sports. Yeah, definitely. And when I think back to like any pre 1985 WWF footage, it's just that static wide mm-hmm. shot of the ring where you can see a little bit of the crowd, but not much of the crowd and kind of the wrestlers take up the whole frame. And it just, it's very static. Whereas Southern wrestling, right. Famously just kind of wild and woolly and all over the place. So everything goes good forever, right? That's, that's the end of any problems with like the money or anything like that. Everybody's happy <laughs> starting in the late 1970s, right. With don't, don't tell me something bad happens, David. Well, I mean, a couple of, a couple of bad things happen. Um, I mean, number one, the, the wrestling, which was very successful, was kind of part of the flagship of, of TBS and you know Turner famously said that as long as he owned it there'd always be wrestling there and but the wrestling really in the early years was what TBS did best in terms of sports like Turner went out very aggressively and bought the Hawks and the Braves and that almost bankrupted uh TBS in fact I think they specifically set up Turner Sports so they could group the wrestling in with the Hawks and the Braves to make the books look better I like I, I mean I, that's sort of a of an apocryphal story. I don't think it could be proven without access to the, the Turner legal documents of the time. But but wrestling was a huge part of, of propping up TBS during the time where, you know, Turner was being very aggressive and the results in the marketplace just weren't there yet. The the adopter rate for cable, you know, the, the, the crest of the wave hadn't hit yet. That would happen later in the 80s. And also, of course, uh, if you're a Mighty Ducks 2 fan, uh, you know all about the junior Goodwill games. And uh, the Goodwill games were Turner's attempt to kind of replicate the Olympics because NBC just was so strong with their Olympic coverage. It's still some of the highest rated stuff, you know, every four years, especially for the Summer Olympics. Uh, but but he wanted to recreate that with the Goodwill games. And that was just a huge, like once again, another thing that really just a big kick between the legs for Turner Sports. So wrestling was always expected to be the consistent performer throughout the late 70s and into the early 80s. And if you know anything about like wrestling history long-term, you're in a pretty scary position when you're saying, yeah, yeah, the wrestling, that's going to be the consistent performer. Yeah, because that isn't a boom-bust cycle at all. It's very consistent. You don't have to get the Fed involved. It's just you keep no hyperinflation on that, nothing. It just, it's good forever. Right, Dave? Right? Oh, well, right. I mean, until someone comes and, like, completely breaks the paradigm, too. And, I mean, that was kind of the next big problem that they ran into. I don't I don't like where this is going. Please tell me Vince McMahon isn't involved. Uh, well, I mean, Vince McMahon is involved, and I, I, don't uh, want to tell, I don't want to tell the story that he's, like, a super evil or bad guy. In he's a businessman. He's a businessman, and let me say that, so 6.05 on Saturday night on TBS was the wrestling time slot, and was the wrestling time slot just going back to maybe 74 or 76, I think, when they became TBS. Like, 
The 6.05 on Saturdays was the time slot. Some actual historian is going to correct me on that. It's going to be really bad. But 6.05 was the time slot when people watched wrestling. And as Vince McMahon, or Vincent K. McMahon, takes over and starts to expand, uh, number one, it makes sense for him to get that time slot because that is the wrestling time slot with the highest kind of casual or, you know, broadest national audience. Um, and he's also interested in using the talents of someone we mentioned earlier, who is Jim Barnett, because Jim Barnett, like going back to the 50s, Jim Barnett had been the bookkeeper in Chicago in the 1950s on the Dumont, like when the, like wrestling on the Dumont Network. So Jim Barnett had been in wrestling on television as long as wrestling had been on television and knew basically every station manager in the country or at least west or east of the Rockies. Uh, so he was a super valuable contact. Yeah, Jim Bar- Barnett is the lost great figure in professional wrestling history. He is maybe the most important person outside of Ted Turner and Vince McMahon, right? Oh yeah, I would say so. And I think that one of the reasons though that he's not better remembered is because a lot of the most important moments in his career were some really well-timed stabs in the back to various people. <laughs> but he had a he had a flair for drama and he had he, you know, he he wasn't afraid to win dirty and he definitely took huge pride in, in being one of the most powerful men in the business, one of the real power brokers. Like you hear about like Sam Mushnick in St. Louis, huge power broker, Vince McMahon in New York, huge power broker, but uh, Jim Barnett right there in the sixties and seventies. Jim Barnett was a business man. Yeah, yeah. right. I mean, he, he really is one of the people who helped tied together our modern concept of the business where you, you pair the touring with the constant marketing and building of the fan base with the really strong TV. Like, I mean, I, I think Vincent K McMahon would have had his vision independent of Jim Barnett, but I think it was crucial for him to study what Barnett had already built and to try to get Barnett onto his team to help him kind of, you know, to, to be the consigliere during, during expansion. And that's essentially what happens, correct? Yeah, so so these are the events that lead up to July 14th, 1984, which is famously known as Black Saturday. So what happens is Vince wants the 605 time slot, and Vince wants Jim Barnett. And Barnett's feeling a little bored, like he felt really important, you know, a decade later, kind of saving the day, coming back from Australia to, to, to put this new company together and really create the Georgia Championship Wrestling brand. So he's a little bored, and he wants to do this new thing with McMahon. So Barnett goes to Jack and Jerry Briscoe and tells them that he's planning to sell to McMahon and that if the three of them put their shares together, they'll have a majority of the Georgia Championship Wrestling Office. So basically, they are going to sell out to McMahon as a hostile takeover, specifically so that he can get this 6.05 time slot on TBS and kick his nearest national competition squarely between the legs. Uh, I have a a very serious question. Did he meet... Jack and Jerry Briscoe at Briscoe's Body Shop? Or was that like in the Georgia office? I, I don't know. I don't know if the body shop existed yet. They might have taken the money they got in this deal and opened the body shop. <laughs> good for it. them. That's good. That's entrepreneurship. That's what America was built on. <laughs> <laughs> but but all this is like this is like six months after McMahon signs Hogan. So I mean, this is the most aggressive move to date. Yeah, this is beyond just being a businessman, I think. This is being a conqueror. This is being an emperor. This is being a person who is willing to push all the chips into... Like, Hogan, you pay a guy more, you treat him like he deserves to be treated in his own head, 
you they, it makes sense that they got those guys and yes they went in but let's not act like the other promoters were good guys that treated their employees well like to dis- we need to dispel that notion right now right Dave Oh yeah, no, there were certainly territories where certain promoters were better payoff guys or certain promoters were fairer than others. Uh, but I mean, it was a business where like all the money went almost literally into a black sack and the promoter pulled out however much he thought it was right and handed it to people that night. So yeah, it was definitely never a business where labor had any control other than their ability to either no show or refuse to do something in the ring. So like when you hear about these old timey carny wrestlers pulling these nutso power plays, like, you know, honky tonk man, not losing the IC title to Randy Savage or every, that just doesn't work for me, brother Hulk Hogan story. Like it comes from a time and place where that was basically the only power that the boys could hope to get. Yeah, and I think it's important to also understand that this is a different thing, what he's doing. He is actually a usurper at this point. He is really going hard after the crown, the the throne. He's going hard after the throne. This, like you said, is the most aggressive thing. He's basically, he did up until Starcade when he put uh, Survivor Series on. This is a really big shot across the bat. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is this is the first time I think Vince McMahon stood up and everybody realized, like, holy shit, this guy wants to be wrestling. Yeah. Like, this guy doesn't give a shit about any of the other promoters, their, their rights to promote in their area regionally, or their rights to have a television show that you don't usurp the time slot of or that you don't, you know, go to the other channel on the other side of town and pay them five grand a week to put your show on or whatever, just to break them and stuff. Like this was the moment when people realized, I think like, oh, it's really like that. Like, I think some people who were ahead of the curve had probably noticed already and famously, you know, Vince Sr. sent a few promoters some letters uh, on his last day of work, uh, supposedly warning a few choice people. Like I know the Funks got out of the business uh, almost immediately and stuff. So there, anyway, uh, but, but no, definitely. I think this is the moment when everybody realized like, Oh my God, he wants to eat us all. Yeah. We're playing for keeps now. This isn't a cartel. This is like, he's going for a monopoly and thankfully everything worked out great for McMahon, right? Everything's good now at this point, nothing bad happens when they put on, they meant black Saturday, like, like, uh, in a good way. Right. Right, like uh, like that like that album. Isn't that an album? <laughs> no. I was actually thinking of the 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 Black Sunday movie where there's a terrorist at the Super Bowl and the Raiders are playing. That was more what I was thinking. Ooh, ooh, see, I missed that one. I didn't even know that existed until you just told me about it. Uh, it you don't. You can put that right back in your brain and just let it rot because it's not it's <laughs> not good. Uh, so yeah. Not good. Not good. Nothing. Nothing good comes of this in terms of McMahon in Georgia, right? Or I should say, in the South, anywhere that's not New York. No, it, it it bombs pretty hard. I mean, it was it was his most aggressive move, and it was honestly, at least in the short term, we'll talk about how he kind of spun the negative into the positive. But in the short term, it was really one of the greater failures of of his whole career because you know anybody. Who talks about wrestling they always say you know the art of wrestling is like it's what you've conditioned the fans to watch like if you look at the indianapolis like you know dick the bruiser and stuff like if you look at that stuff that they were playing in indianapolis or cincinnati like 
a lot of that stuff was pretty rough, but like that was what the people knew. And so those people were just as into wrestling as the fans who were seeing much better wrestling in other territories where there were better wrestlers. And people had been conditioned to see that Southern style of wrestling where the angles are really personal and really real. They feel like quote unquote, you know, blood feuds and there's there's a certain format you know to the way the the tv works production wise and certain you know there's you know whereas the wwf like you were saying before is totally different and they didn't have gordon solely which was famously the thing that ted turner himself was just blown away because he suddenly had thousands like literally thousands of letters coming into his office, people complaining that there was no Gordon Soley. And he always said that in spite of all the violence in pro wrestling and also in spite of how questionable it can be, et cetera, he'd never received a complaint letter in the, about the wrestling product in whatever, 10 years, and, you know, however long they'd been doing it. But all of a sudden he was getting thousands of letters from people complaining like, where are the wrestlers we like? Where's Gordon Soley? This other announcer, who was Vince McMahon, by the way, <laughs> is terrible. So it really was a, a spectacular failure and Turner hated it. And Turner himself started negotiating behind Vince's back first with, I think, uh, Ole Anderson about maybe kind of putting together what had been the Georgia crew, putting them back together under a new name and just, you know, bringing them back or uh, partnering with Watts and getting the, the UWF uh, on TBS as well. So Vince gets wind that Turner is kind of bad faith negotiating with all these other wrestling promoters, you know, to put them either, you know, before or after him. And then when his rating erodes, cancel him kind of thing, you know what I mean? Like he sees the writing on the wall here that, that Turner is uh, not into him, let's say. And that's when Vince gets Barnett again. So now his fixer who he's bought from Georgia to find a new buyer for the 605 time slot because he knows his days there are limited. Turner doesn't want him. The people don't really want him. He made a bad first impression. He never did a second, you know, first impression, so to speak. So he wants off TBS before Turner can do any more dirty pool to devalue the time slot. So Barnett contacts the Crockett's. Uh, the Crockett's pay McMahon $1 million. And uh, McMahon invests that million dollars supposedly in uh, in WrestleMania one. So I said that it was a short term disaster because the show really bombed. Um, but, you know, uh, less than a year later, he gets a million dollars back and he uses it to, to fund the show that cements him as the biggest national promoter in history. And this is a kind of perfect timing for Crockett. There's really a, a wave that they're about to catch to really put in some high quality television. And part of that is being booked by Dusty. And part of it is just having one of the great talent rosters in history. <laughs> they had the pick of basically the entire Southeast of the United States. And increasingly as the AWA started to dry up people from that pipeline as well, there was a solid pipeline between mid Atlantic and the AWA, you know, dating back to the sixties and always had been. And a lot of those people started basing out of the Carolinas rather than basing out of, you know, Minnesota or Chicago or Denver or wherever for the AWA. So yeah, they, they had this, tremendous all-star roster of basically, you know, the the cream of the crop of, of who had been developed, you know, in the Southeast by the various NWA promoters for the last 10, 15 years. 
which allowed them to promote very successfully and increasingly aggressively, you know, in the Carolinas and then down increasingly towards Georgia and, you know, Virginia and like that whole area. They were really poised to explode. They had the talent roster as the, as the smaller promoters kind of started to close up shop and things started to consolidate. They had, you know, they'd, they'd inherited this great territory in which to tour where people really loved wrestling and they were really starving because they had not been enjoying the McMahon product that had been on air for the last year. And I mean, you know, they're coming, this is uh, about two years uh, after the first uh, Starcade, about a year and a half, really, after the first Starcade. So they're, they're rocking and rolling with putting together, you know, big spectacle shows. So there's just so many different pieces coming into place here, both for McMahon and for the Crockett's. And it's kind of like the Independence Day aliens where the entire world, in, the, in this case, the NWA, is like, all right, well, enough of this, like, screwing each other over thing. This is an existential crisis for us. We kind of have to let Crockett be the main territory in a way that I don't think was really something they would have done without someone like McMahon breathing down their necks or honestly like pointing a gun at their fucking heads. (laughs) I think that it was the way to go. I mean, the only other, I mean, there was like the AWA and Memphis and uh, world class. They did the whole pro wrestling USA thing. So I think that that definitely was the, the feeling was that, you know, it was join or die uh, to, 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 to to reference the wood block. (laughs) Yeah, and which gets us to March 25th, 1985, which is the last episode of WCW that's produced by WWF. Um, right, Dave? That's the last one. Don't tell me there's another one. Please don't tell me there's another well, one. Well, I mean, there, there was that whole Booker T. Buff Bagwell thing, but I don't know. <laughs> that I hate that that counts, but it does. But yeah, so wh- and that's essentially where we get to now. Because like we said, uh, the, sh- the first episode is going to premiere on April 6th, which just so happens we didn't really plan it out this way, to be the, uh, and it's going to premiere at 6.05, which is wrestling's time slot. The first episode of World Championship Wrestling is produced by Jim Crockett, and that's where we're going to start off next episode. But for right now, I think we, is there any other history we need to clear up? Is there anything else that people need to know about how bad Vince McMahon was or how chivalrous that Ted Turner was, I guess? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I, I think, well, I think actually the, the person who maybe we've given short shrift to, who we can just talk to a little bit more at the end here, and this is really someone who I know you know a lot about for your own uh, TV research, and that's Dusty. You know, as much as Vince was competing with the Crockett's, Vince was competing with Dusty. Crockett was, you know, the, the equivalent to Patterson, really, for the for the Crockett's. You know, Vince had Pat Patterson as he's, his kind of... Wrestling you know, genius, thing. kind of. Exactly, exactly. And so Dusty was, was the corresponding piece and uh, he was, as we get here into 85, you know, certainly past his prime as a wrestler and a worker, you know, not what he had been. Uh, but as we'll see moving forward, uh, Crockett kind of lived and died by him in 1985 and 1986. So I think that he's another important character who we need to mention here. And he is part of that whole cabal of, you know, uh, the Fullers and uh, and Jim Barnett and uh, uh, Bill Watts and people who were were influenced specifically by Eddie Graham out of Florida. He was from that coaching tree, you know, that Watts and Fuller and Kevin Sullivan and Mike Graham 
And all of those guys were all students of Eddie Graham, the kind of legendary Florida promoter. So I guess I just wanted to add that note about Dusty that that he's a character we will be talking about a lot. Yes, uh, for better or worse. Uh, which, Speaking of which, uh, so the show that we're going to be doing going forward is not going to be like this, and it's also not going to be like How Wrestling Explains, right, Dave? No, definitely. The Pod Beyond is, it has an exciting new format, and that's one of the reasons I'm really excited to do it. The show is going to have like a whole different flavor. Yeah, so the original concept for this show, to let you in the, on the inside a little bit, was to do the War Games, all of the War Games matches. Here's the trick with the War Games matches almost none of them are on television it's really hard to find sometimes you can find old video cassettes that have been ripped and because of that we what we had the idea we thought it was cute maybe it's not but we hope you like it is uh we're gonna do a bunch of different segments each week but we are going to interchange different like modules i guess you would call it for the different things that we think are important that week to talk about we want to give it some sort of consistency and that's kind of based on just me listening to a bunch of podcasts in particular uh dave and jeb aren't mean the podcast that they do on hallmark movies jeb was actually nice enough to be on our uh christmas episode so that that's kind of where i came to the idea that this would be the best way to do it because there's so much going on every episode that it would be impossible to sit there and describe everything that happened in a some sort of linear fashion you would get caught up so what we've decided is every five minutes you're going to hear some sort of a signaling noise and we're going to move on to the next segment uh we're professionals we'll be fine we're not going to be scared of the five minutes but to, it'll be a quicker moving uh show than i think what we have with how wrestling explains and uh, the way we're going to start it off is every week we're going to run down the entire show uh, and we're just going to give you a quick is this good or is this bad? Do we like this or did we not? Uh, we're not going to get too in-depth because we're going to go out of our way to talk about every single segment that happens separately in its own more contained space. And so we'll start off next week, for instance, I believe has 19 different segments, not including the ones that we combined that are really register as three or four different segments. So that's what we're going to see is we're going to go quick. So you guys get an idea of what to look forward to in these episodes and an idea of what we thought worked and didn't work without, you know, chewing on the bone too much. Yeah. You know, I can't stand to, to chew on a bone beyond its, its logical end point. No, <laughs> I, I think it's going to be really, really exciting. And it's, it's, this is taking me back. Like my blood's rushing a little. This is taking me back to like when I did improv or like speech and debate in high school. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> and, uh, we mentioned dusty the, the, there's going to be interchanged modules. I would put all the money in my pockets against all the money in all of your pockets that every single episode will have a where's dusty segment. Whenever Dusty wrote the American dream, not on screen, all the other characters should be asking, Where's Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream? The reason I include that clip is because to me, Dusty is the poochiest motherfucker in history. Dave, how do you feel about that? Uh, so far, I have watched one episode of television uh, for for the Pod Beyond, uh, one episode of uh, of World Championship Wrestling, and um, I already hate him. <laughs> it's, it's brutal. It's just like 
every time you you just have kind of settled down and you're like, oh yeah, that was a nice match. And then boom, suddenly Dusty's on screen in like a cheap looking slicker cutting a promo. Uh, where he just spends the entire time tearing down everyone around him and making personal insults about women. It's The Rock and Triple H combined. It's kind of horrifying. And the weird thing is, is he's the best booker of all. Like this, outside of Dusty, is the best wrestling show I have ever seen. But every time Dusty's on screen, you're just like, what the fuck, Dusty? What are you doing here? Yeah, he's got the can't help himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. there is literally stuff where he shows up in like insets where you're like, dude, I thought, I thought we agreed that I wasn't going to have to see your face. Uh, and what's what's also going to be a little I, I don't know if it's reminiscent or a shock to people is uh there are a lot of jobbers and that's that's another thing I think we're always going to talk about is every episode of World Championship Wrestling has a jobber. These are the best jobbers you're gonna find on the open market. I mean, some of the great job guys in the history of wrestling come through this territory. And from George South to Rocky King, there's this real smorgasbord of different flavors of jobber. And we are, I think that's the segment we're most excited for, right? There's really this magical balance where just all of them look completely and totally terrible um like across the board but in all sorts of different ways like they they almost look like wrestlers like they they like they look like if you took the wrestler action figure and like put it in the oven for a couple of hours sitting upright so it would just kind of melt down but no it's fantastic but they're all amazing at getting beat up and there's such a difference between someone going out there and getting beat and someone going out there and and really really putting someone over and and just knowing how to you know get absolutely nothing and get absolutely you know stiffed at every possible opportunity or thrown over the top rope every which way but but just still you know knowing how to land in the ring in ways that sound loud and look impressive it's it's really a masterful art that i wish we could see more on uh, WWE programming. So I, I'm looking forward to kind of shining a light on on the the great skill that is doing a TV job. <laughs> yeah, it's you we will really be showcased. You will remember these people's names. I will be joined by Rich Kaysen, uh at the end of these episodes uh, for the match beyond where Rich and I will sit down and really get into the nitty gritty of a match. And we've recorded a couple uh, that's a breaking kayfabe, I know, but Every time we watch a jobber, Rich and I just have this like, oh man, that that's a pro's pro getting his ass kicked every single time. It's it really enhances the programming without giving away a bunch of matches that you don't need to give away on free TV. The model, they are so integral to the model of professional wrestling at the time that it's really hard to overstate their importance to making sure everything runs on time everything works the way it's supposed to because without them you would have to spoil a lot of things that you see happening now in modern wrestling jobbers this will be this will bring back the lost art of the jobber for me <laughs> didn't i tell the story just recently about uh, what was vince mcmahon's big complaint about eric bischoff that he was giving away too many competitive matches on tv we are not going to see an excess of competitive matches on this show 
No, no. We that might be the one detriment to the shows. There's not a crazy amount, but even the jobbers have people they job to that are then jobbers to the stars. It's structured in a way that totally makes sense. And one of the people who has, I, I guess you would call them jobbers to the stars. Maybe they're a little bit more stars than I believe them to be. Uh, would be Paul Jones, who. Paul Jones, number one Paul Jones, I believe is what they call him, who is another, he's a manager in NWA uh, slash the Jim Crockett Promotions, and he's kind of a a Jimmy Hart style, uh, or he's a guy that has a cabal of people that are just misfits that he's in charge of. And he's a really important person for that mid-card and for that undercard uh, that the jobbers kind of exist in. He's one of the key components to that working the way it does because he's one of the people that brings in monsters that are one of are really the people who benefit the most from jobbers are these big time barbarian uh, black not black Bart uh, barbarian and uh, God who's the other guy uh, Billy Graham superstar Billy Graham and, and superstar Billy Graham where they're really not the best workers but they can work just enough that it makes sense that if they had a little bit of a boost in this case, Paul Jones, it will make them into, if not viable contenders, at least someone that isn't just this listless person walking around trying karate. Yeah, definitely. Paul Jones. I like that you compared him to Jimmy Hart because they both have the thing where like they're awesome wrestling managers because they're kind of terrible wrestling managers. Where like, you know, uh, we, we saw Paul Jones wrestle back on the Arne Anderson episode. He's definitely a, a good worker in his own way. I enjoyed that match very much. But um, not like a Paul Heyman, Jim Cornette, Bobby Heenan type promo. Just sort of like a generic, shouty, Scooby-Doo villain with the yes. mask on. We're going to get you kind of deal. You know, a, a Skeletor promo, so to speak. Yeah, you're expecting him to complain about meddling kids. Like, it's really... He's fun and he's very reminiscent of a time where you needed different kinds of managers to tell different kinds of stories. And his guys, and we'll uh, we'll get into Jimmy Valent, his guys, when we start off, are really in a deep feud with Jimmy Valent. And I think that, as much as I hate Jimmy Valent, grounds him in some kind of reality and makes a lot of the stuff he does more bearable. Without Paul Jones being on television, he is a very good, or in that interview, Paul Jones is a really good foil for a lot of people because he doesn't, if you beat him, it doesn't matter. He'll just come out with a new monster. It's not a thing where he's sold himself as uh, Bobby the Brain Heenan, where Bobby the Brain Heenan's whole thing is I'm the smartest person, I'm the best person, I all I do is manage champions. So if you're not managing a champion, it's like, what? What are you doing? Where with Paul Jones, he knows what he is and he never tries to be more than that. And that's what I love about watching the Paul Jones stuff. He doesn't do much, but he does exactly what he's supposed to do. And he's exa- it's a, it's, uh, it's poor man Scott Hall in terms of that. Just where he's supposed to be, taking the bumps he's supposed to be, doing the things he's supposed to be. He's the quintessential. I, I, I know that uh, they mentioned that he's one of the top managers. I don't think he's one of the top managers, but I think he's a quintessential manager for the period. In ter- or not a quintessential, because I guess Jimmy Hart would be that. But he's a guy that works as an avatar for that time of that kind of manager. 
Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, he's there to get knocked down and pop back up in the next episode. Like he's he's Shredder or Skeletor or choose your you know your episodic cartoon villain. And uh, you have the cartoon villains, and then you have the real villains who are the Horsemen. The Horsemen don't really form until later in '85, but from the first episode, literally the first clip you'll see. They're starting they're the seeds of what will eventually become the horsemen. And that, to me, this is going to always be the segment I'm the most interested in because it's Arn and Oli, especially at this point. It's Arn and Oli kind of building up this just nasty enterprise of dudes that beat the shit out of other dudes. Look good doing it. Make the most money. Have the most women. It's this real, like... The uh, the cavalry has arrived for Ric Flair and for the heels as we're done playing by the rules in any way. We are going to turn this thing around on its head. And you can't ask for somebody. We are a – we love Arn Anderson in this house. He is my favorite wrestler of all time. And he is – he's not – at peak Arn, but this young Arn, we talked about a bunch during the essential the uh, Arn episodes we did in the beginning of January. This is really some of the best origin story kind of stuff you're ever going to see in any medium. It's really there's so much realness to the stuff that's happening, and so much gravitas to these characters that it really fundamentally changes the way that the company works. Yeah, I mean, I saw Ric Flair's fortune form in real time, and I can only hope that this will be, you know, at least 1.5 times as impactful. I'm really excited to see the, the four horsemen come together. <laughs> don't don't knock fortune, man. They did. <laughs> it's hard enough getting them on the charts, okay? <laughs> no, fortune's terrible, and I think that you can see why stuff like that doesn't work. Because you watch this natural evolution of these two cousins, who Oli keeps calling brothers, developing into him and Tully and Rick and JJ, and it becomes this group. And you're really seeing the seeds of this from literally the first minute of WCW television it's it's uh with jim crockett promotions it's they lead with their chin on this and they do they have a strong jaw because this is the signature group especially in crockett jim crockett promotions and probably in the history of the wcw yeah definitely i mean uh, we we talked in the past i keep throwing back to the iron uh, episode but like this idea of you know the top third of the card that those heels are just these like really smart but not admirably so really talented but not admirably so really funny but not admirably so guys like they feel like true forces specifically you know tully arn uh and and rick i think and you know uh, Oli definitely he he talks the game and he gets across the idea that they're not good people that they're they're just kind of crummy mean nasty people and at the end of the day like that's the heel that makes money not the cartoon monster the the realistic unlikable terrible person and they they had that going so effectively at crockett and from there what we will be because you know the horseman business is is rough stuff so we're gonna lighten it up the versions we're gonna be looking at will include um a lot of commercials 
And the original music for all of the stupid-ass music videos that are the most beautiful bad thing you've ever seen. Um, And we're going to kind of put them into some sort of – we're going to look at this through the prism of the 80s, right? We're going to say – we're going to really try to get ourselves in the mindset of like, what the fuck are we watching? And does it work in 1980s – time or is it so does it even look like the fabulous ones where you there's no way at any point the fabulous ones video with um what was the song that they used everybody wants you they're so heavily influenced by like mtv it's kind of hilarious but what there are music videos throughout this shit and the use of music is crazy like in the first episode manny fernandez comes out to beat it <laughs> it's too soon. too soon nick it's nuts though that they just were like oh who gives a shit we'll just play this music who's gonna stop us which paul i mean paul Heyman did the same thing 15 years later yeah so. yeah no, it, it's something that really one of the biggest shifts is the use of contemporary music and the use of video segments that feel like music videos that i and there's a bunch of other stuff there's commercials there's also ghosts going to be random things that happen in the episode that remind us of the 80s but i really i'm excited for that just because i think it'll be fun uh i am maybe less excited for the announcer focuses because it's almost always going to mean that davy davy crockett fucked up davy crockett in watching through uh r anderson arn anderson our four horsemen episodes and stuff like that davy crockett he's not anywhere near tony shivani who's really fantastic and sometimes he becomes such a mark that it kind of becomes detrimental. Uh, what's the what's the famous line that he he once uttered? Whip him like a dog, or whatever. Like just yeah, getting very wrapped <laughs> up in the moment. He's definitely a, an announcer who would not exist in today's WWE or even the WWE of of any point. There's this kind of like freewheeling, real time reaction fiery passion from Tony and and David Crockett that I don't think you really have ever gotten at any point in WWE history other than maybe Jim Ross at sort of the height of his powers. But I think yeah. there's this distinct style of super engaged, super emotional and excited announcing that I, I am excited to explore, even though uh, David Crockett is famously very bad. Do you get the feeling when you watch these shows that these guys are all friends? Or acquaint they like they work together very closely in a way that when you watch WWE, it feels the way that announcing feels in a sporting event, in the sense that it's two professionals, two or three professionals who are not attached in any meaningful way to the people they're watching, unless it's like a local network. It's much more quote unquote objective. It is framed as objective in a way that they it's not that as though they're completely biased necessarily, but that they don't hide when they don't like somebody personally or when they do like somebody personally or when they think somebody's a great worker and when they think somebody's like kind of an asshole uh, in terms of like working too rough and stuff like that. It is a much more uh, – the verisimilitude – I don't want to say it's more realistic, but the verisimilitude of how something like that would actually feels like it should operate – it, it makes sense within the context of the show, both in terms of the physical proximity, because you can't talk shit to a guy who can hear you. 
in the ring because you're in a studio that's like 10 feet by 10 feet. Oh, I mean, it's a little bit bigger than that, but not much. And I really think that change, changes the dynamic more than almost anything is that studio style of presentation that Davey and Tony Schiavone, Tony Schiavone, really, we're going to get into Tony Schiavone. He's amazing. He's really something special to watch during this time. And you can understand why he was the voice of WCW for so long and why he worried. I actually really liked him in the, his brief stint with WWF. He is the most underrated announcer to me in the history of wrestling. And I think we will, we'll be able to flesh that out more as the weeks go by. Yeah, definitely. I think like you said, he, he had that thing where he felt like he really knew all these people and lived in the same world as them. But yes. at the same time was grounded in being really real. And I think that that's one of the kind of magical things that a non-wrestler can do. Like you and I, we can't really relate to like, you know, Dwayne Johnson or Triple H or whatever. But it's like, ah, you know, 1980s Tony Schiavone. Like, yeah, that looks more or less like, you know, th that could have been me had I been that age at that time kind of thing. You know what I mean? He has that kind of magic thing where he feels totally real, but he feels like he exists in the same world as the wrestlers. So it kind of... I don't want to say it legitimizes the wrestling, but it gives us the, this kind of extra layer to it where like, well, that Tony Schiavone seems like a normal guy. And if it was all bullshit, he wouldn't be part of it. Yeah, exactly. He seems on the level, even if everybody else around him is full of shit. I, we will sing the praises of Tony Schiavone probably week to week. Um, but it's not all good and it's not all Davy's fault. Some of it's just going to be bad. And some of it's also just going to be racist. And we're going to probably switch those out. Though I think that the racism we're going to see, we're going to encounter, is going to be a fundamentally different kind than the white liberal racism that you encounter watching WWE, for instance. That like neoliberal style of racism where it's like, I love black people, but I don't want my kids going to their schools. Like this is racism. Like they but they really kind of uh, they don't they they kind of address it in a way that is much more mature than up until I mean literally the last month and a half WWE has ever addressed the subject there are real racial animosities that they don't feel I mean maybe with Oli they're real but they don't they don't feel like dark they feel like those are the bad guys we're supposed to not like because this show advances a kind of multicultural idea of what the world should be through guys like dusty who is, i think that's one of the good things he does is he's very um multi he's much more embracing of different people to push from different backgrounds than say vince mcmahon is but he also writes in his characters especially the horsemen a kind of old-timey southern racism where it's like listen they need to go over there in their own space and we're gonna have our own space and you see it again from pretty much the beginning of the show that they're framed as bad guys because they are against the ideas that the ideas and the ideals that fuel the world that Dusty is trying to create on television, which is that anybody can succeed, can succeed at any time if they're talented enough, and the Horsemen want that to go away. And that is like their main inciting goal at the beginning is basically to turn back the clock on like segregation. Yeah, like I said before, there is a real nastiness to the heels in, in this era of Crockett that there just isn't. And that, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of fire that of all the different kinds of fire that WWE has played with over the years, they never really played with this one much. Uh, like you said, until recently with the kind of Kofi Kingston type stuff, but no, I think that there, there is a, 
a I, to to use like an overused term <laughs> there is a gritty realism to the to the badness that occurs in this world it's not like people stealing the macho man's hat or whatever like Oli and Arn are racist is part of the problem of the Minnesota Wrecking Crew reforming and like that they specifically on television like are are targeting black wrestlers and stuff like it's something that the announcers draw attention to so I think that even if it's imperfect and even if, you know, uh, some people would argue that there's no place for even portraying that kind of racism because kids are watching and stuff, you know what I mean? But at the same time, I think it's, it's interesting to see a version of wrestling that's trying to grapple with one of the most problematic aspects of wrestling historically. You know what I mean? That that's actually something that's being played out here while at the same time, like in the WWF, it's like uh, SD Jones and, you know, later Coco Beware flapping his arms and stuff like that. They're there. Even if the exploration of race is super flawed and some of the things that happen on TV are racist in a way that's hard to watch. It's like interesting that they were trying to engage on that level, that they understood that like heels are evil and that is one of the evils in the world. So we are going to see some racism because they didn't shy away from it. <laughs> yeah. And I think that they're actually making, I, I, th- I think you can credit them with this is that they are not using it as a promotional tactic in the way that a Vince McMahon would. They are using it as a character, a characterization of the performers it's not this racist is going to get his ass kicked by a black guy. It's this guy's a racist and you want to see him get his ass kicked by anybody. And I think that's the biggest difference is it's not the primary driver of the storyline. The Andersons are assholes who are racist and why they're bad people and not just standard bad guys is because they're racist. It really – it's I, – I understand the argument that kids are watching, but I think – in theory, if they're going to get their comeuppance, there was this, I, they handled it with as much maturity as you could possibly imagine from 1985 wrestling. It, it really shocked me how unoffensive it was because they were clearly treating it as though there was something they had to be responsible with and they couldn't just be like, oh, well, we're just going to have Samba Simba. Do you know what I'm saying? They really understood what they were messing with in a way that I don't think I don't think McMahon quote unquote sees race, but that doesn't make what he does not racist. Where Dusty and them never claim to not see race, they actually engage with some of the stuff in really interesting ways. We'll get to a storyline with Jimmy Valent that is actually like more advanced than the racial discourse you will see now on a lot of television. It's I'm not saying they're the ultimate progressives and we should really see this as some sort of like exploration of what it means to be black in America. But I think that they acknowledge that that is a different experience than being white in America. It's not just where Americans, there are real challenges that people have to face and they really do address them at the very least. Even if, like you said, it's not perfect. Xenophobia, on the other hand, they're just like, fuck it. We're just going live, man. (laughs) Cause I love the Russians. Uh, so very much but the russians uh in a segment we're gonna call from russia with love because i'm an asshole uh it's they're the most fun group of heels 
you can they're just kind of they're good without being great and they're tough without being so tough as to make them ass kickers and they're heels pure bred heels that really know how to get the crowd over and here's the most important thing know how to get everyone else on the roster over i love the russians from watching them for all the way back to our communism episode all the way, all the way, all the way back for the Cold War, which was literally our first episode. We have looked at the Russians, and this is I'm really excited to really get to live in this anti-Russian fervor that is still tempered because it's written by Dusty, and I think that's one of the things you have to give them credit for, that they're treated simultaneously as animals from another country and as people when they're willing to not be assholes. And I, I think that's one of the interesting things that they kind of treat Russians the way that, uh, that McMahon would treat people of color. Almost. It allows you to kind of see it in such a way that it's not offensive. It's so goofy that you would hate these Russian guys so much. They're like, look at them. They're kind of idiots. And like Ivan Koloff's just like a grandpa that likes everybody. <laughs> That's a bad guy. I, I love all three. Crusher, uh, Crusher Khrushchev, Ivan Koloff, the Russian bear, and Nikita Koloff. Uh, the Russian Nightmare are three really great performing I mean, Nikita's Nikita, but they're three really great performers, and I, I I'm really excited to sit in that Russianness. Yeah, definitely. I think that if you if you go on this journey with us, I think you will come to love Ivan Koloff as much as I do. Like you were saying, Nick. I mean, he broke into the business in the early '60s, in like '60 or '61. So he'd already been in the business like 22, 23, 24 years by this time. So like. He's just a super veteran, maybe someone who physically, you know, didn't move around the fastest, but still was able to have really good matches. And you can kind of see him out there as like the player coach at times with especially Nikita and later on uh, Darso as well. But yeah, no, I, I he's actually kind of low key as I've gone back and watched more 80s wrestling. One of my favorite guys I've ever watched because he's mm-hmm. just someone just it, it, it's one of the things the old time wrestlers say. Just think everything he does makes sense, and I think that's something that 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 people will really really dig as we take our look at the Russians. And he has my favorite moment from the first episode, uh, which we'll get into next episode. It's uh, it's the oh look good for you <laughs> when Oli beats the shit out of Thunderbolt and they're walking. Good for you not hanging out with these people anymore. <laughs> but he doesn't mean it right. He means good guys. It's amazing. Well, we'll talk about it next week. Um, yeah. So uh, there's the good of guys that are way too old to be doing the shit they're doing, and then there's the bad, which is uh, the boogie woogie man, the ballad of the boogie woogie man, fucking. God, I hate Jimmy Fallon so much, but I get it. I get why he's over. He's just so not my type of wrestler. He's like a, he reminds me almost like a Brutus Beefcake where it's just like you're over because your gimmick is over, but your gimmick is also kind of, it's hard to explain. It's like, I don't begrudge you your overness, but if I were in charge, you would not be over. He's got the old school kind of territory thing where like you can tell that he got big on a smaller scale that mm-hmm. like, that he was someone who in a in a more tight-knit wrestling world where people were going to live shows every week he's the kind of character you would have fallen in love with in that environment because he is a character and like we said before there's there's a lot of blood and guts there's a lot of pretty real stuff going on on these cards but i think jimmy valiant does provide that kind of that nice uh he definitely lets the steam off of things uh, a lot of the time. I mean, sometimes he's just completely batshit, 
but 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 even those I think are are, are kind of enjoyable. So he's he even here in the world of you know in the world of uh, eighty five here, it's almost like we're looking kind of back you know <laughs> five years, kind of what Southern wrestling was more like late seventies early eighties. Yeah, he's he's not a bad worker per se. He's not good, but he's not he's not bad at anything. But he oh, sorry, he's not bad at anything. But he's also just kind of a lot the entire time and he cuts occasionally good promos and he gets interested it gets involved in interesting storylines but i always watch him kind of wishing he was just a little bit less out there and annoying he reminds he just reminds me of like i don't even he reminds me of jinder mahal in a weird way where it's like they're there to be uh, to get reactions on the show and they do get reactions but you don't want to see them because they're Jinder Mahal or Jimmy Valant it's that they're not ever going to especially now Jinder Mahal with Jinder Mahal they're never going to get past a certain point so it almost feels like you're wasting time with them instead of watching somebody that could actually advance up the card in a meaningful way yeah, I mean, I, once again, I think we're the, this is uh, we're dealing with an anachronism where he's really a territory wrestler, and this is kind of the beginning of big time na- uh, uh, cable national wrestling. You know what I mean? Like he's someone who back in the day in Mid Atlantic, you could put the U.S. title on or whatever that he could be a regional champion. But like when you have a a truly national promotion, and when you also have that roster consolidation that we were talking about earlier, where you suddenly have you know a murderer's row then it's a little more apparent, as you said, that, you know, that, like, that this guy, why would this guy be involved in any serious storylines or important titles? Which is why it works so good with Paul Jones. Paul Jones pushes him away from that, where it's like, oh, he's just after Paul Jones. They give him a reason to be, and it's not to get on Starcade, which is something I think we're going to be covering later on. Like we said, we're going to be pushing Madra segments in and out, uh, rounds, whatever you want to call them. We're going to be pushing them in and out, so not every episode you're going to see every single thing we just mentioned so far. But the Starcade report, I, I'm excited to once we start building towards Starcade right now, uh, especially where we start, it's so far away from Starcade. It's in April. Starcade's in no, late November. This is the biggest show. It's really the only show in town for a couple of years until WrestleMania comes out. And Starcade in particular is the crown jewel of the year for WCW slash NWA in a way that is weirder than, to me at least, the WWFs with the WrestleMania because the WrestleMania is such a show show. It's especially WrestleMania one is just basically like an exhibition of a professional wrestling show. It's not an actual professional wrestling show. It's almost like a sampler where Starcade's a real professional wrestling show that happens to be a big show. Yeah, I definitely think that that's accurate. And I think that gets back to something we were talking about earlier about kind of like the fundamental difference between Dusty and the Crockett's versus McMahon and Patterson, definitely. Yeah, and uh, after that, uh, and then we have the last thing which I had mentioned earlier. Um, we are going to have Rich Kaysen from New York Wrestling Connection come and speak with me for the first couple, and then we're going to try to get Dave in on them once we get the two-man booth down. We'll expand it to three-man booth because I know how much Dave loves a three-man booth. Uh, and uh, I'm going to be asking him, I'm not going to be asking him to break kayfabe, but I am going to be asking him real questions about 
what's it like being in there? What you're looking for when you're watching a match? I, to me, it was a real learning experience. He's a former world champion with NYWC. Uh, he's been with the company for as long as I've known him, basically. So we went to high school together, but basically since he graduated, I think he's been with the company for like 10, 15 years. He's been there a long time. He's a really great worker. He's worked in a bunch of different styles with a bunch of different people from all over the world. And I'm really excited to have him on the show. We actually had him on the show previously in the How Does Wrestling Explain Slasher Movies episode, but I, I think this is, I think they're about equal actually, but uh, he's a real honest to God expert and a wrestler. And I'm, I'm just, I'm thankful he's going to be on the show, not to blow too much smoke up his ass, but it's, I think it's going to work out great. I think that's really out of all of the stuff we're doing, a lot of it's fun. I think that's really where you're going to get the value added if you join the Patreon. You're going to get to hear real breakdowns from a professional wrestler of matches that you're going to be able to look at in a completely different light. Yeah, I'm super excited for this, and I know you already have the uh, a couple in the can, and I have been very restrained in, in not asking to uh, hear them ahead of time as I've been watching the matches as well. So I, I am particular, and uh, I'm really looking forward to that. I don't know if I'm going to give you $2 for it, though, but I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> wow, Dave. Uh, so yeah, that's going to be the show. Uh, we hope you like it. Um, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact us at uh, a at H-W-E-T-W pod uh, or at Dave Wright's Junk or The Nixter. Uh, we are going to be putting this going forward. I, I think we're going to release the first episode just because I, I want people to see the hear the format of the new style because I think we're both excited to bring it out to the world. Um, but after that, everything is going to be behind uh, the on Patreon through uh, a different service than we use with Podbean. So, uh, yeah, did you have anything else you wanted to add, Dave, before we head into the sunset of whatever we're going to be heading into the sunset of? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I don't really have anything exciting to add other than I am really, really looking forward to this. I, I have been ever since we first kind of batted around the idea of doing a, a kind of a supplemental premium show about six months ago. Um, and I got even more excited for it when uh, you told me that we were going to be doing this uh, Crockett slash, you know, WCW TV uh, rather than just just the war games matches, I think it's going to be really really cool to be able to talk about wrestling, especially with the insight that that Rich brings. And I think we're going to be able to talk about, like I said, wrestling storytelling and execution in a way that we I don't want to say that we struggled to do before, but in the way we just haven't had the text in front of us that we could we could point to to really do the best possible job. So I'm excited to not just be talking about wrestling, you know, conceptually, but actually to be engaging with text i think that's going to be really a blast for us and i think it's going to be a blast for the listeners even though i just made it sound like fucking school by saying engage with text. <laughs> yeah I, i'm you're you're a former teacher i'm a former student i'm very excited <laughs> about everything uh so we will see you on saturday and every saturday going forward at 605 uh but for now dylan roth is going to play us out with sharpshooter which he was nice enough to make for the show uh we hope you like it and we can't wait to see you on saturday at 605.